Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. I'm here with producer Jason DeFilippo. Here at The Art of Charm, we may not have all the answers, but hey, we got some of the questions. And of course, on Fan Mail Friday, those questions come from you. And then we'll do our best to get you the answers, advice, and uh, tough love slash discussion that you might need to solve some of these issues here. And Jason, as usual, we have some interesting stuff coming in. There was a lot of fun ones I didn't take all of the fun ones. Sometimes I take the doozies, so we got a little bit of a mixed bag today. Okay, good. Well, shall we get started? Yeah, let's do it. Hello, Jordan. I'm a writer from the Netherlands, and I've written over 10 romance books. My books are doing great. I won some nominations for book awards, and I always get great reviews. I've also had some interviews on the television. It's very hard, though, to make a living writing books, so that's why I'm also a copywriter. But it's always been my greatest dream to become a full-time author, and I work really hard to achieve this. I'm currently single and I decided to try some online dating. So far, it's been a great journey, and I've had several nice dates. I find it hard to figure out when to tell those guys that I'm a published writer, though. When I start talking with someone, they always want to know what I do for a living or what my biggest passion is. I avoid those questions with other answers, but it feels like lying because I left out a huge part of my life. But there's some weirdos out there, and I don't want to tell this thing about me because they can find everything out about me within minutes. I'm not sure if I want to put myself in that position because I don't know the guy I'm talking with at all. I've noticed that once I do tell them about this, mostly during the first or second date, guys start acting differently. They sometimes act as fanboys because I know certain people or achieved certain things. Other guys see it as a scary thing and back out once they hear this about me. Sometimes they think I write erotic books and they conclude things that I'm, well, not into. I find it really hard. Writing is a huge thing in my life, so how do I deal with this situation? When do I tell them that I'm a writer? Thanks for your help. Wordsmith looking for love. This one was interesting for me because this is a public figure, right? Welcome to dating as a public figure, even a small time one like you and me for that matter. This adds an extra dimension. There's a infinite Google ability for you. That's the extra dimension I'm talking about here to the relationship. And the other thing that's interesting is, of course, you've written a bunch of romance books and yet your dating life is kind of, I don't want to say a mess because I don't want to be hard on you, but you're having troubles with it. So the irony there is kind of funny because I, I also know that when I was primarily a dating coach, it was one of the hardest times for me to date as well for similar reasons. The good news is most people, great people anyway, 
won't care what you do. They won't care that you're famous in your country. They won't care at all. It won't make a big difference. They'll appreciate that you're not a closet psychopath and that they can Google you and figure out a little bit more about you, even if it's just stuff in the media. Works better for guys to be Googleable than it does for women, maybe. But I think each gender has an advantage at this. And in my opinion, you need to be honest about this because this is your screen about who's going to be able to handle your life and your occupation. Your screen for people who are going to be able to deal with your lifestyle, the fact that other people recognize you and that you're all over the Internet and possibly going to write about things in your own relationship, potentially. They have to be able to handle that. So a fanboy, that's not a good fit. Being honest here screens for emotional maturity. So that's a huge advantage that you have. People who are going to be able to emotionally handle your lifestyle, your living, the fact that you know other celebrities, etc. This is going to screen those people out who can't handle that. Obviously, people who are immature are going to think you're into BDSM or whatever's in your books. I don't know. And that's fine. Get it done early. Don't lead them on for a while and then go, by the way, I wrote all this kinky stuff. And they're like, yeah, all right. And then you've got to write them off after seven dates. Get it out of the way in the beginning. Honesty will work better in the long term. It'll be harder, though, in the short term because you'll have to deal with all the realities that other people have when dating and also all of the stereotypes that come from being famous in your country, being a romance writer, being a public figure. So you're going to have short term and long term issues as a result of this. But honesty is going to work better long term. It'll just be a little bit trickier in the short term because you're going to ha- run into problems that quote unquote normal people muggles. Uh, don't have, right? And the good news is once you're able to get some folks through the initial screen, you're going to be dating people who are much better fit for you. I am a huge fan of putting almost everything out there in the beginning so that things like this, these unusual situations, they don't crop up later, especially since, as you stated, you feel like you're not being honest if you hide your profession from those people that you date. So strap yourself in because it's going to be quite a ride. But in the end, that's what the dating game is for everyone anyway. You just have a little bit of a handicap when it comes to this because you got a little bit of extra, I don't know, I don't want to say baggage, but uh, there's definitely going to be people who after the first couple dates go out and pick up a couple of your books and you have to write them off because now they think you're into, I don't know, electroshock sex or something. So have fun with that, but... But I don't have any doubts that you're going to find somebody who's great for you. You're just going to have to look harder than most people, I think. Electroshock sex. I think we have a show title. I think that's a show title, yes. (laughs) Hey, AOC. Fan Mail Friday is my favorite aspect of the podcast. However, for the past few weeks, I've noticed the listener mail has been about highly abnormal and extreme situations. For example, the Australian guy who had a sexual partner who ended up robbing him. While I understand that these people truly need help, any average person could offer sound advice to help them out of their situation. I think you would agree that your listeners are generally very high-functioning. Listeners who don't struggle with basic emotional intelligence. The time spent responding to these bizarre situations does not benefit the majority of your audience. So let me stop you right there. We do have some doozies on here that are just kind of crazy. Some of them are for entertainment value. However, I think our advice always has a lesson in here. It's We're never going to just dole out advice that's like, hey, stop getting really wasted on meth and going out to strange bars dressed in an animal suit. Okay, th- you're welcome. We're never going to do anything like that. There's always going to be some value there. However, I will say, Jason, that this is so ironic that she starts her letter with that we don't struggle with basic emotional intelligence. We're very high functioning. I agree on the whole. The people listening to Fan Mail Friday are very high functioning. However, 
please read the rest of her letter with the above in mind that most people don't need the basic advice. Go ahead. My question slash pain point is this. I struggle with not staying engaged in conversations. It happens with my coworkers, friends, family, everyone. I tend to just say, yeah, or yep, and sort of sigh and look away. It leads to my conversations ending abruptly, even though I truly want to continue. I found benefit in the AOC Toolbox episode about the five principles of a solid approach, but I'm also needing help with the principles of a solid interaction, not just approach. Do you know of any drills or strategies for staying engaged in conversation without seeming like you're working really hard for it? Sincerely, Stuck in a Daydream. So I'm not saying that this contrasts so ridiculously to laugh at Stuck in a Daydream. I just think it's very interesting that somebody who thinks, look, I don't need help with the basics, then goes on to ask what is a very, very basic question where essentially the question is answered in the letter. I say, yeah, or yep, sigh and look away. Is that what somebody who's engaged or interested in other people does? So I wanted to highlight that because stuck in a daydream, you're not interested in other people. Just look at the beginning of this email where you aren't interested in the situations we've been discussing on Fan Mail Friday, unless I'm misreading the situation here. So it's no surprise that you're also reacting to other people in a disinterested way. I do applaud the fact that you're asking for help here. So I don't want to beat up on you too much. Uh, I'm also open to the idea that I'm mistaken here. But I wanted to point this out since this, this to me, seems like the root of your problem here. The best way to be interesting is to be interested in others. I didn't make that up. I think that's a Dale Carnegie thing or something like that or Zig Ziglar. Since you're not interested in other people, though, uh, those other folks are going to engage less and less with you, which is going to be a downward spiral. So we need you to get ahead of this. So, did, Jason, does that make sense so far? Because it's basically like, look, I don't care about these other people's situations. They're just too basic. And then she's like, ah, my problem is that I talk to people and I don't give a crap. And that's kind of what I'm reading here. That's exactly right from my perspective as well. So my suggestion here, Stuck in a Daydream, is ask questions about the other people. I know that that sounds basic, but I think that's where we're starting here, regardless of whether or not you like that answer. It doesn't have to be relevant to the topic at hand. Your questions don't. It helps if it is, of course, but here's an example. If someone says or asks you something, answer as you would, then you can just ask if they have any big plans for the coming year or if they did anything interesting this weekend. If it seems small talky, it is, but we're not going for conversational gold here or a deep connection. This is a basic question. We are only looking to find ways to signal to other people that we're interested in them even a little bit and interested in what they have to say. So as a drill for you, as basic as this might seem to others, and even though you say you don't struggle with basic emotional intelligence, here's the drill. In every conversation that you have for the next few weeks, find a way to signal to the other person that you are interested in them. This usually takes the form of a basic question or two and some follow-up. You don't have to share your own answer to that same question unless they ask you. Again, this is not about conversational magic here. It's just about signaling the most basic interest. Now, I could add more here, but I think this is a great drill for those of us that find our conversations dying early on because very often the reason that our conversations die early on is a lack of perceived interest coming from us 
towards the other person. And again, this may sound basic, but it actually is not. Loads of people make this mistake. So get cracking on this. I can promise you it'll get some conversational momentum going for those of us that find ourselves in these sorts of ruts from time to time, especially when we're tired, we're on autopilot at work, or when we really aren't interested in the other person, but we find that we have to try harder because we're feeling socially isolated. So, Jason, this one was interesting for me because it is in many ways very indicative. Like, hey, I don't care about these other people, and I know I don't need these basics. How do I fix my very special, unique problem? And then we look at the problem and go, this is exactly the same problem. It is indeed very basic, but if we don't want to think of ourselves that way, we just reject the advice that comes to us about this problem and look for some other magic formula. So I found this so interesting. It seems like it's kind of a, you know, just a basic fundamental lack of self-awareness. Yes, definitely that. That's certainly the case um, here with Stuck in a Daydream. There's no doubt about that. All right, next up. Hey, Jordan, AOC fam. I'm a 24-year-old law student, and I have an acquaintance who teaches social capital here in Australia, but doesn't really have any life experience and seems to be one of those guys who focuses on making YouTube pickup and self-improvement videos. I've seen a growing trend of pickup artists on YouTube talking about the masculine aura and being alpha. After listening to your show, you seem to focus on improving oneself so they can attract a mate rather than learning a set of abridged skills like the ones they teach. My question is, are those specific skills that those guys teach even necessary for the average guy, or is it more beneficial to continue along the path of self-improvement and let your improved social confidence do all the talking? I've always been on this crossroads and feel like I've neglected something by not learning those skills, but at the same time, those skills seem to overwhelm me. And the times I've approached women and done just fine with being me with more confidence. So let me stop you right there, Jason. I know there's more to this question, but my answer is always. I mean, the whole point of this show is work on yourself. Let your confidence do the talking. And the way that you build confidence is not by learning how to fake it from guys on YouTube. It's about working on yourself, shoring up weak points, making yourself interesting by finding things that you are interested in. So I just wanted to get that out of the way before we get into the rest of the question here, because the answer is always work on yourself. The answer is never learn a fake set of habits. Trust me, been there, done that. Jason, let's finish, the, uh, let's finish this up here. There's a lot more to this. My second question is related to comparing myself with others' progress. I really want to teach social dynamics and help people overcome their social problems, but I still have issues within myself, which I'm working with a professional to overcome. I'm pretty skilled at helping people overcome their social anxiety, etc., but I seem not to be able to help myself. I feel like I should not start to teach anything until I sort these issues and become successful in my endeavors and gain some more life experience. Throwing back to my previously mentioned acquaintance, I can confidently say that he doesn't have much life experience and isn't that successful, but portrays the illusion of grandeur on social networks. I feel like if I took the path and made some videos, I would be cheating people by telling them how to live a successful life without actually having achieved it myself. Would it be beneficial to wait to sort my life out or start planning my videos? Much love, walking the path. Welcome to like 95% of self-help guys on the internet, especially on YouTube. Hey, look at me. I've got this great life. I got this great car. And then they go back and they're like, if I just tell enough other people that I'm successful and awesome, they'll It'll believe be raining it. Lambos. Yeah, they'll, they'll <laughs> believe it. And then I'll eventually believe it about myself. That's not how this works. You're falling into comparison mode with these YouTube videos. Many YouTubers, they get into this for the same reason that your friend did. They're insecure 
they want to prove to others and to themselves that they're bigger, better, badder than they are. I've been watching this process happen live in real time for 11 to well, 15 now years, 11 doing the show. This process always repeats itself. I think this should answer the question of whether you should make your own videos, which, of course, would just parrot mindlessly content delivered by others. No, I want to highlight this. The reason you're thinking about doing videos is not because you want to help others. It's what you, you think you're doing it that way. You think you're doing it for that reason, but you're not. I know you want to help others. I'm not saying that's not the case, but that's not the real reason you want to create a channel full of content. The reason you want to create that channel full of content is to prove something to yourself. The problem here is that this will create a paradigm of you comparing yourself to other YouTubers who are faking it and who are in turn comparing themselves to you, who is, by the way, also faking it, if you do it now, this creates a downward spiral of bullshit until you don't even know who you are, you don't know what you wanna do anymore, you don't know who these other guys are, you've been playing a game with people online and on social media instead of focusing on the task at hand. You've been distracted the entire time, you have no idea what you can do, the task at hand is self-improvement, personal growth, not pretending to be growing while filming yourself getting in and out of a rented Lambo. So leave your ego at the door, forget the videos, forget about what your friend is doing and all these other dork balls on YouTube. Shift the focus to what you actually know works. Working on yourself, shoring up weak points, building skills, and figuring out who you are and what you want without interference from the freaking internet and social media. This will lead to authentic confidence. That confidence will, in turn, make you a more attractive person when you actually need to be, instead of just making you an expert at putting on a social mask and faking it, which is what you're going to learn from all this YouTube stuff. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, next up. Hi, AOC. I'm 32 and studied to become a marine engineer and a navigator. I had a career at sea doing both for some years. I was never fully satisfied and felt I could do more. Three years ago, I quit and got a job as a sales engineer. It was great at first. I loved the steep learning curve. However, it started to get boring after a while. I started looking for ways to improve things, which was at first welcomed by my boss. After a while, however, it seemed that she started getting annoyed, and eventually I was fired. I was told that it was because of cost reductions, but I'm convinced it was because I made too much noise by showing the obvious that the company was going south. I, however, got another job the same day, so all was good. Again, the job was awesome at first with a steep learning curve. However, after about six months, it started getting boring, and I started feeling worthless in that what I do doesn't matter. This is an old issue that has been with me as long as I can remember. Motivated by your podcast, I decided to get therapy. My therapist quickly identified one of my main problems, which is high intelligence. I had my IQ tested, and it turns out I qualify for Mensa. That has been an eye-opener, and I hear about lots of people with similar issues. On one hand, I'm proud of being highly intelligent, at least in that respect, and on the other hand, I hate it. I always feel that I should do more with my potential, but I don't know what and how. I have what most would consider a great life, a lovely wife, a healthy kid, a very nice house, and an economy that is well above average, and still I struggle with the feeling that I'm wasting my life. At work, people like me and my boss is satisfied. It seems I am the only one not being satisfied, and I'm afraid that I might create problems if I tell my boss about me being incredibly bored most of the time. I often thought about being self-employed, but I have no idea what to do, and I don't want to jeopardize our financial stability. I feel stuck and would appreciate any advice on what to do in my situation. Yours truly, High IQ. What a bummer. All right, High IQ. Long term, this job is probably not a good fit for you. But don't quit now and don't make that decision now. This isn't a midlife crisis situation, or at least it doesn't have to be. It sounds like we're edging towards that, but it doesn't have to be. This, to me, sounds like a lack of purpose spurred on by your high IQ, but definitely not unique to people with a high IQ or high level of intelligence, although I am looking at your spelling, and you know what I'm talking about. Which I know spelling isn't necessarily (laughs) correlated with intelligence, but it's always funny when someone's like, "I'm I'm a genius, and I'm like, that's not how you spell genius. 
Um, you know, that always makes me just kind of think, what the heck is going on here? But I also realize learning how, you know, knowing how to spell everything right, typing something on your phone, different than high IQ. But I, I can't help but take a little take a little bit of an observational note here. If you have hobbies, great. If you don't, find some. If you want to do a side hustle, that's great. Get one. Listen to the Chris Gullibo episode on the podcast here. Enjoy some of the tips from the business episodes. Those will give you challenges outside of work, the hobbies, the side hustle. Challenge yourself at work. Get your stuff done in less time. Make your work process more efficient. Invent something that makes your job even easier. Invent something that makes your colleagues' jobs faster and more efficient. So whenever I don't feel challenged, I get meta. And what I mean by that is the Greek definition of meta. I was crap at social skills 15 years ago. I worked hard to get good at networking and relationships. When I started to get good at it, I started to teach it to other people for free and no, not on social media, like the guy we were talking about before, but to get even better at it, find out where my weak points lay, et cetera. And then when I knew I had really accomplished some personal goals and had been able to help other people do the same thing, we began this show. We started helping other people online, by phone, talking about our own experiences, not as coaches or teachers. So getting meta with this a.k.a. trying to solve the problems and logistics around the ideas and the skills, that really helped me challenge myself in a way that was outside the skills themselves. So I think if you challenge yourself to find out how you too can go meta with your job and your industry, you will find a whole new level of challenge that keeps you interested. So even if you find something else, like a side hustle or a hobby that occupies you outside of work, which I also recommend, I think going meta at work will really help you stay engaged. And just as importantly, it'll keep you from resenting your job long term, which will lead to further unhappiness and a sense of unease. And the good news is going meta will be fun and exciting. And if you're anything like me, it might even lead outside your current career to something you really enjoy and in which you find a real deeper purpose that keeps you engaged long term. So it's not a one-size, immediate, overnight solution, but the good news is you don't have to quit your job or start some other risky thing after hearing this. You can really just dive in even deeper to what you're doing now while keeping your eyes open for other opportunities later on down the line. All right, next up. Hey, Jordan, my question is around picking a partner. I suppose it's a good problem to have, but I'm struggling to decide whether to continue a relationship or continue in the dating field. I've worked hard to reach a point where I'm starting to feel successful, and I'm worried the thinking of always wanting better may be clouding my dating judgment. I'm 29, and it's been over seven years since I had a serious committed relationship. I just wasn't the best catch for a while. I wasn't the best socially, working and traveling a lot, and developed bad stress coping tendencies of partying and trichotillomania, also known as hair pulling disorder. It's an impulse control disorder, by the way, characterized by a long-term urge that results in the pulling out of one's hair. So with probably some periods of depression mixed in there as well. Fortunately, things have much improved over the past year. I can handle stress much better and I'm doing very well in a better consulting position while developing profitable side endeavors. I'm feeling much more confident and happier and that I'm a better catch. Even better, I recently met a lovely lady and have been seeing her for four months. It's been really great and refreshing to be with her after such a long stretch of being single. She has a lot of great qualities and some not so great. What's clear to me is that she is ready for a committed long-term relationship or to move on without me, and soon. I could see myself being very happy with her, but part of me just wants better. 
To throw a wrench into the mix, since we've started seeing each other, I have been on one other first date, which was today, where we tentatively planned a second date. It was nice, but now I just feel guilty. How do I know when I've got a great catch and to stop overthinking and commit, or to just keep looking? Best, hair pulling Pete. Hey, Pete. So, I'm only going to speak from my personal experience here, but, well, actually, before I get into that, if you're suffering from a compulsive control disorder where you are pulling your hair out and you can't stop with some periods of depression mixed in, this is a sign of mental illness. You should get help from somebody who's a professional here. It's not, I'm not saying you're long-term mentally ill here. I'm saying that your level of anxiety and depression is something that should be treated by an actual professional. But I'll speak from personal experience with the dating stuff. You're just getting up from being down. Whenever you get out of depression or you get through something, you got to realize it looks like you've come really, really far. And you have. Congratulations. But there's also a lot of growth to do. And growth can either build or kill relationships. You need to get some time to be yourself as a healthy man. 29 years old, man, you're still young. Sure, lots of people get married then or even earlier, and some even stay that way. For me, personally, I needed another half decade of growth before I could sustain a really mature and healthy relationship with my wife, my now wife. So I know you're like, oh, hey, I don't do the hair pulling stuff. I haven't had depression bouts in a while. Now I'm in this relationship. Should I settle down? The answer is no. You might think, wow, I'm so I'm 90 percent better, but you might only have grown five percent of where you need to be in order to really be in an emotionally healthy place where you can find somebody that you deserve to be with long term and create and commit to a healthy relationship with them. Further, it really sounds like there's pressure coming from the other camp as far as commitment. This is bad. This is real bad because it's clouding your judgment here. Would you commit to this girl and this woman long-term forever if she wasn't bugging you to do it? If the answer is no, then do not do it, in this, especially in this case. When you commit, it should be because you're excited and you want to, not because someone's threatening to leave you or telling you how much it's hurting them. This is a huge red flag. And for me, this is a massive reason why you should not commit at all to someone you've been seeing for such a short time, especially since you're dating other people and you're not even sure what you want yet. This is just a major set of red flags combined with the fact that you're not ready for this. When I decided to marry Jen, I did it because I really wanted to. I was excited about our future. I got along great with her. I got along great with her family. I was really jazzed for the next steps. I was scared to death about the proposal part, but I was really excited for our life together. It was not a commitment that happened because... Her mom was bugging me or she was bugging me. That wasn't happening. It was not because she was forcing the issue. And it also wasn't because I thought, well, it's about time or some other logistical or external reason that involved me having to just rationalize or convince myself that it was time. I didn't have to go through that. You shouldn't have to go through that, which is what you're going through right now. That's a huge red flag. So I don't think that you're ready. I don't know you well enough, but I can tell even from this letter that you've got a lot of growing and a lot of living to do. And you need to do it before you'll be ready to commit and settle down. Anything else is just an abs just a recipe for disaster, especially with the girl that you're seeing right now. All right, Jason, next on the line. Hi, AOC. My boyfriend and I have been together for five years and I have plans to propose. I've already asked for his parents' blessing. Not that it was necessary, but I just thought it was respectful. And they tear-filled and joyfully gave it. 
Now comes the hard part. How does a man propose to another man? Do I buy an engagement ring? A watch? Get down on one knee? I've been Googling like crazy, but I can't seem to find any good stories about how to propose to someone of the same gender. and thought AOC might be able to help. I'm much more traditional than he is, and I want it to be more formal and exciting and a bit of a surprise. But I'm unsure about the engagement ring aspect. Do men get engagement rings, or is that silly? Thanks for the help and advice. Sincerely, Two Guys, One Proposal. All right, hey, Two Guys, One Proposal. I take it Jason thought of that name, or you guys have an <laughs> equally gross sense of humor like me. Fantastic. Yeah, congratulations. You guys get to write the book on this, man. If you're traditional, you can go do proposing with rings. You can get down on one knee. You can do whatever you want to do. And I would say that to anybody, traditional, non-traditional, gay or straight, I don't care. Since you are driving this, you get to go off script, you get to do whatever you feel is right for you, man. I get why you're asking permission here, because this is kind of uncharted territory. Oh, gay marriage, and also this is happening, and this is on you. This is, trust me, everybody who's about to propose goes through the same thoughts, whether they're going to marry uh, someone of the same sex, someone of the opposite sex, somebody who doesn't choose one gender, doesn't matter. You've never done this before. It's going to be weird. It's going to be uncharted territory. Look, if your partner likes watches, sure, spend the money on a watch. Get a cheap ring for symbolism. The watch should be tasteful and timeless. That's my advice. So it becomes a family heirloom because that's probably going to happen. How cool. And if he doesn't care about watches, then yeah, get a ring, whatever. To be honest, Jenny and I have rings. We maybe wear them 30% of the time because we just don't really care that much or value this type of symbolism that much. We wear them when we get dressed up, when we go out, if we go to a family thing, we wear them. But in the end, this is all about you and your partner. Tradition does not matter as much. And you're kind of off the hook here because it's like, okay, you're traditional, but at the same time, there's some elements of your relationship I think everybody would admit are non-traditional in the traditional sense of the word. So tradition doesn't matter as much, nor does it matter how you actually propose. Do something memorable that he'll appreciate, that'll make you feel like a romantic badass taking your relationship with your boyfriend, future husband, to the next level. And I'm really happy for both of you guys on a personal note. I love that I was able to throw in my two cents on this as well. It's a great time to be alive, fellas. So many happy returns for you and your significant other. All right, Jason, let's take it home. Hi, Jordan and Jason. Earlier this week, a colleague of mine, we'll call her Susie, pulled me aside and instructed me to remove one of our team members, who we'll call Tim, from an invitation list. I'm hosting a baby shower for another colleague, who we'll call Anna, at my home. I responded that the baby shower is common knowledge around the workplace and that Tim had already told me that he's looking forward to attending the event. Susie responded that if I went through with inviting Tim, who is very unpopular, certain people would not attend and that it would ruin the event. Susie suggested that I spin this as a ladies-only shower so that kryptonite Tim doesn't polarize the celebration and take attention away from the mom-to-be. Tim is a bit socially challenged, but a decent guy, housebroken, and a friend and colleague of Anna. He has made some unwise choices and is now despised by the majority of our management team. It's common knowledge that his contract has not been renewed and he will be gone in less than six months. I don't know Tim's motivation for wanting to attend the shower. Perhaps he's hoping that it will improve his social position. Or maybe he just wants to celebrate Anna and feels a particular connection since his wife is also pregnant. I genuinely care about Anna and want to throw her a nice party. Tim is a decent guy who has made some bad decisions, for which he continues to pay a very high price. Susie thinks that the ladies-only angle is legitimate and that all of the other guys that we work with will be grateful to be excluded. I feel like I've crossed a line in the sand that I drew back in middle school, 
My historical focal point for experiences of bullying and exclusion. Is there another way to look at this? I've considered running the dilemma by another unbiased colleague, although I think that Susie's assessment of the dynamic is accurate. Tonight when I sent out the invitations to female colleagues only, I felt like a complete asshole. Are there other options? Throw a second mini shower at the office or insert your solution here. Sincerely, back in middle school. All right. Well, that sure sounds like bullying to me. Look, I'm not sure what Tim has done, but it's probably not that bad. It's a freaking office party baby shower, for God's sake. Get yourself together. Get yourself together here. What's really strange here, and the indicator to me that this is bullying, is that Anna, who the shower is for, is not the person who requested this. But it was some other random colleague, Susie, who has it out for Tim. Sure, maybe Tim did something to Susie. She doesn't want to be around him. I don't know how they work together, whatever. That's fine. Susie can stay home in that case. But what Susie does not get to do and what she should not be doing is recruiting a bunch of other people who are probably don't care nearly as much to just boycott Anna's event that you're throwing out of some BS solidarity for her dramatic office politics and other BS. That's rude to Tim. It's rude to pregnant Anna. It's rude to you. And it's rude to everybody who she's saying, you shouldn't go because Tim's going to go. I mean, these imagine the awkwardness. Uh, yeah, I guess I won't go because otherwise I'm never going to I'm going to be next on Susie's hit list. I mean, this is garbage. Since the invitations are already out for a, a ladies only event, unfortunately, I'd say you can either throw another mini shower at the office just to get it done. I'll vouch now for the idea that the guys are probably glad they, they don't have to come to the bigger one anyway on a Saturday or whatever. But yeah, look, unless what Tim did was so bad that he probably should have been reprimanded by HR for doing it or terminated, dismissed, whatever, Susie just sounds like a total a-hole. She just sounds like a terrible, dramatic, insecure person. And that's a terrible person to to let them get away with this kind of thing. You have to be careful of getting wrapped up in drama like this inside the office, even though Tim is leaving, because it's not going to end when Tim leaves. She's going to have some other BS issue that's going to come out about somebody else. When people like Susie get away with office politicking and bullying, it's only a matter of time until her target changes once Tim is gone. So just be aware of that. I hope the party goes well. And, you know, you got to unfortunately, you got to watch your back from Susie because she just sounds like a disaster who has no qualms bringing her BS into the office, which is highly unfortunate. She should be the one who doesn't get her contract renewed. All right. Recommendations of the week. We're changing it from documentary of the week because we often have books and stuff that we like. Jason, you've been downing content because you're a little under the weather. (laughs) Yeah, so I checked out Scam City on Netflix, and it was funny. I I watched like the first episode or two, and I texted you, and I'm like, "Hey, have you seen this thing?" And you're like, "Yeah, we saw it." But then, like, we watched a couple episodes, and Jen didn't like it. Thought it was kind of crappy and scammy and bad, you know, production values. And I got a couple episodes into it farther. She was totally right. Yeah, Scam City is a scam. Yeah, man, these guys are just making things up and passing them off as real. So I would have to say, skip Scam City. But they they do uh, latch on one thing. Taxi drivers, most of them around the world, will try and scam you at some point or another. Yeah, I just felt like there were fake actors in a lot of the scams, and then the other scams mm-hmm. were like, yeah, this isn't really a scam. It's just kind of you dramatizing a thing that happens sometimes. It's like, nah, pass. I caught one of them, too. Uh, there was a taxi driver in Prague who, in like two episodes later, was like their personal security guy. So and you're like, hey, totally, no fair yeah. using your producer as a taxi, a taxi scammer. <laughs> and then later on as your personal security guy, pick a different intern. Exactly. 
I mean, yeah, he looks like a shady pimp, but come on, you got to get outside the box. Hire some local. Yeah, talent. that's just them with bad hiring practice. Yep. And so I also read The Wolves at the Door, the true story of America's greatest female spy. This is the Virginia Hall story. Uh, Michelle Rigby Assad turned us on to this during our show, and I finally got a chance to kick back and read it. And oh my God, what a crazy story. One of the most amazing women. And she was just, she stayed in France and spied for the Allies and, you know, ran, basically ran the resistance in France until the war was over. And she had a chance to go home. And she said, no, I'm not leaving until the, you know, the Germans are put in their place, which is pretty amazing. Hope you all enjoyed that. I want to thank everyone that wrote in this week. Don't forget, you can email us Friday at theartofcharm.com to get your questions answered on the air. I keep everyone anonymous. You can either make up your own funny name or we can do it. If you got feedback for the show, we are fans of strong opinions loosely held. We'd love to argue like we're right and listen like we're wrong. So don't be shy. Hit us up over here. A link to the show notes can be found for this episode, of course, at theartofcharm.com slash FMF149. Quick shout-outs to Helen Elias and her fiancé Abe in Mexico. They listen to the show all the time. And Ruth from Sweden and her fiancé Shane, who's an up-and-coming comedian in New York City. Wow, tough grind. Best of luck out there in the Big Apple. Real tough grind to be a comedian in New York. Holy cow. Oh, yeah. Man. Well, that's how it's done, man. That's how it's done. Yep. Weeds them out fast. Are you in a strange land listening to our familiar voices? If so, hit us up. We'd love to shout you out. Love to hear from you. Either way, I'm on Twitter at The Art of Charm. It's a great way to engage with the show. I'm also on Instagram at Jordan Harbinger. And Jason, you're on social media. I'm on the Instagram at JPD. And as always, you can check out my other podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. We're on Spotify now and on other podcast players such as CastBox and iTunes and everywhere fine podcasts are sold. All right. More from AOC at theartofcharm.com, including info on live residential boot camps. Those are run by AJ and Johnny. If you want to dig into some of these skills with uh, AJ and Johnny as your coaches, go on over to theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. Now stay charming, get out there and connect and leave everyone better than you found them.